Boom! What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Very excited to be talking about how technology and government shape society. We have Samu Buria joining us on the show. Hello. It's good to be back. Number two for you. Yes. Very excited. Yes. Almost a year ago was our first episode together. We've had a whole year to update our mental mm -hmm. maps and now sit back down together and talk. Very excited to be talking about this subject. You are a social scientist and founder of Bismarck Analysis, which analyzes organizations and governments for clients. And you can find Samo's links below to his website, his Twitter, and his new YouTube channel, which we highly recommend subscribing to. Very powerful short bursts of intellectual deliciousness. Wow. wow. So, Strong endorsement. Strong endorsement, yes, yes. Well, when you analyze uh, why civilizations fail and succeed, I think that give, that is a very important point for people to mm -hmm. know and learn about. So, so we're really excited um, for this round two. Let's start things off, Samo, with the analysis of the current state of humanity. Uh, that's definitely a very big topic. And I think almost everyone senses that they should be thinking about it much more than they actually are. Uh, I think almost no one is delivering a detailed look through all the relevant aspects. And I think if we're going through all the relevant aspects, we should make sure that we look at knowledge, we look at power, we look at the state of human connection as such. I think looking at knowledge first, the biggest changes that have occurred in like the last 20, 30 years has been a change in how we consume information. We've straightforwardly gone from centrally administered information that is consumed in a synchronized manner by all of society. You know, the TV show that would empty the street or the newspaper editorial everyone would talk about has been replaced by like a broader ecosystem where people are reading different websites at different times, have different interests, different niches, watch whatever show they will on Netflix. And while there definitely still are trends, this sort of like, there's no longer this common media heartbeat that used to exist. That has immediate consequences for power as well. Uh, the, great, the great power still exists. Uh, states, nation states still dominate the world scene. They move around armies, they move around economies. Uh, this game has been in motion for a few hundred years. It's not yet stopping, though the rules are changing and new actors are entering the space. Because of the new nature of media, governments right now are grappling with how to interface with it, how to regulate it. America has its own approach, China has its approach, the European Union has its approach now as well. Uh, these will play out in different ways and they'll affect how every one of us uses the internet and they'll also affect how propaganda is produced in society, how mass opinion is altered, how marketing works. Further, these nation states have to contend with the centralized influence and power of individual social media companies. Social media companies represent the true newspaper editors of our era because they can dictate in a way much more strongly than comfortable with admitting what can go viral and what cannot go viral. When things exist on the wild internet, anything could go viral. But if something exists on a platform such as Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, uh, things can be boosted or things can be de-boosted as like on the almost euphemistic term they use internally is. Uh, now, of course, like there should be some management of like forums, of platforms, of conversations. We want to keep things civil. We don't want you know un unnecessary hatreds to be inflamed. But on the other hand, like who is making that call and who is making that decision, and is it made transparently or not? I think for the most part, right now, the companies have a vastly outsized ability to influence public opinion, at least in the West they're probably using it without government oversight. Now, of course, I'm not saying government should be managing public opinion directly, though in practice, historically, this is what's always happened in nation states through everything from the education system to like public propaganda, up to including large physical rallies where people would gather and listen to leaders and so on, right? So how is this gonna be navigated? Will the companies rise up and end up dominating governments? where politicians will chase poll numbers and the poll numbers will be you know, determined by the board of Facebook? Or will the government step in and nationalize Facebook and we'll have something like more like directly Orwellian? Or will we find a way to be free, enlightened individuals and we'll be able to participate in a public rational discourse 
where the ideas of many, many people enrich us, right? Where the information environment isn't one of uh, predation and domination, but a, of actual free exchange of information. I don't think we have a solution for how to engineer this last outcome. It's one that I would dearly like to see in the world, uh, but I, I feel the front runners are the first two outcomes, right? The first two outcomes being um, social media companies dictating public opinion or government dictating public opinion. And that's, you know, that's an unfortunate, that's an unfortunate situation. Now, I, I mentioned connection. Mm -hmm. um, I think that interpersonally, uh, people used to have notably better social skills than they do right now, for whatever reason. The process of atomization set in motion in the 19th century continues. Now, this has perhaps some positive effects, like some harmful traditions can be abandoned, uh, but it's also the case that people find themselves much more isolated from each other than they ever were, and they consume social media as a substitute for actual socialization. Mm. Like there's like this anonymous presence, or perhaps there are people under pseudonyms, or perhaps people are liking each other's photos instead of meeting in person. And whether you know, we have to acknowledge we're still very much physical creatures. We need human touch. We need human companionship. We learn and can see things in person that we can see via a tweet, right? A tweet is now, I think, 280 characters. So we're maybe slowly evolving back towards essays. It'll take a few more doublings before we reach that point. Um, but there are things you can't put in those characters. You can't put in words that are visible immediately, not just from a simple picture or not just from video, but from the highest definition thing there is, the physical presence of another human being, discussing ideas and responding to you in real time, no lag. Cool, those, so that's my summary three, of the human condition right now. Those three, yeah, 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 yeah. So knowledge, power, and connection. Right, human connection. Human connection, yeah. yeah. On, on, the, on the knowledge front of things, I am very much so um, on the side of being able to disseminate memes faster, yeah, more yeah, effectively, yeah. that's beautiful, technology enabling that, while simultaneously the, the, the signal to noise ratio, we're not exactly mm -hmm. sure how that's been affected by this uh, opening of the mimetic propagation. So, right. so that, that's another potential question to figure out is, is, is are we disseminating high quality signal to the rest of population mm -hmm. science mm -hmm. and this foundation of, of collective knowledge that we've accumulated? Mm -hmm. do, you, do you feel like that we're propagating mo more signal? I mean, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I've noticed something because I, I end up talking to interesting people over and over again. I seek out both intellectuals and exceptional individuals who are often shaping the world in various ways. And I notice consistently older internet users, by which I mean people that have used the internet for 20 or 30 years, so not the people that are old that just discovered the internet, but people that were there in the 1990s, uh, they're actually quite good at finding the most interesting ideas of 2019. So whichever the skills they used to develop back in the days of the wild internet still serve them quite well. So they seem to have good signal-to-nose ratio. People that are used to relying on search engines still have a decent signal-to-noise ratio. Now, the search engines have their limitations, but in fact, for most people, this was a massive breakthrough. It enabled them to do like this kind of research and sh sifting through the haystack to find the needle that would have been just impossible. The auto-suggestion functions that we see in the platforms I discussed earlier, the walled gardens of the internet as they have arisen, well, those don't require an active, uh, doesn't require any active action by individuals at all. You, we have in fact come full circle to being back the passive consumer, except instead of whatever television programming has in store for you this afternoon, you can sit down and just see what the auto-suggest serves you. You don't even have to pause to consider what your query is, right? Yeah, when, you, yeah. when you put something into Google, you're considering a query, a search term, yeah. right? And you have to think about that. On the other hand, you can sit on Facebook and just scroll down your feed, and the feed will provide. Well, what has the feed decided to provide you? That's an interesting question. Yes. So this brings us back to like, you know, who determines what's, what's, uh, what's the signal and what's the noise? Yeah. I think a lot of things that are dismissed as noise are actually very strong signal that yeah. is not yet properly understood. That's right. And a lot of the time, once you learn to adjust for like a bias that exists in the signal, the signal is once again accurate. Right? It's the kind of thing where 
if you had something simple in physics, you had weight measurements, and you realize all of them are off by exactly two, you know, two pounds in one direction. Well, lo and behold, you now have accurate weight measurements again mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you just adjust all your measurements for that. And I think there's a very real learning process that's happening where we often emphasize the technological side of the spreading of memes, but we don't re really talk about how individuals are now educated to consume memes, that's right. right? Memes, when they show up, can be very potent, can change your behavior for good reasons or for bad reasons. Second time, there has developed already this kind of like, not immune response, but you have digested it. You have pre-digested what you're seeing. It doesn't have the same impact again. And then again and again and again, and eventually what crystallizes is a, a culture of media consumption. Movies, when they first showed up, they would have people run out of the movie theater when they saw an approaching train on screen because they were terrified. They had the same emotional experience as if the train was really gonna go run them over. No modern moviegoer goer would ever have that response. When propaganda posters were introduced, they had a very strong effect on questions of like, I, should I enlist in the army or not? Today, propaganda posters don't really work on people anymore. Now, this goes both ways, right? You can say, well, what about public smoke, you know, public anti-smoking campaigns, public health campaigns? Maybe those are less effective. Maybe, you know, let's, let's not wade into vaccination or whatever, but let's, for the sake of argument, say all the vaccination stuff, completely true, deeply useful, an important public health issue. Well, it could be that the measures we used to convince people to all get vaccinated and acquire herd immunity are failing, and that the anti-vaxxer thing is less a failure of good or bad science, but a change in what people causes people to be receptive to persuasion, right? Because people were persuaded by the posters, by the announcement, by the Surgeon General, by you know their personal doctor, their physician telling them that you know they really should be vaccinated. And perhaps that's no longer persuasive, right? So the way people respond to memes also changes. A lot of the memes we a lot of our memes live on the inside, they live in our heads. And a certain amount of memes circles around and is shared between us via mediums such as like, again, internet communication, books, institutions. Uh, but I think heads store more mean memes than is usually acknowledged. And these interact with each other. I think you bringing up the principle of critical thinking mm. is extremely important here that it's not just about the way that the memes are distributed um, via technology but how people consume some, them how people consume them what yeah. is our methodology for critical thought and making sure that the seeds children that are born into the world mm. have the deep critical thought of able to hold tons of abstract contrasting perspectives on single issues at a given right. time i'm happy you brought that up and this is again this is kind of you know pushing forth as you mentioned earlier with human connection as well is what is happening to our ability to be able to empathize and get behind each other's mm -hmm. eyes at some levels some technologies enable that more and also mm -hmm. other levels it seems as though we've lost some of the millions of years of eye to eye um, of, of our ability there and so that's kind of an internet's effect on society and we'll be we'll be chiming on this as we go to i want to show ron you want to show the image of the chip first um and then i want to show that image because the the chip for computer processing has now been following Moore's law. We're entering into the quantum computing era. It seems as though processing is now more than ever um, one of the most massive uh, aspects of, of, of human knowledge computation mm -hmm. and dissemination. And also the first image with this is the, is the uh, shipping and transportation of goods. 90% yes. of all world trade happens by sea. We've had a globalization occur um, with these 8 billion humans on the planet. So these things coupled together mm -hmm. with the internet's effect on civilization as well as these words, power, knowledge, and human connection is a very good way to interpret um, the current state on things. And what are your thoughts as the, as the internet is taking such a, a, a massive amount of, of our uh, engagement on a daily basis, hours and hours and hours of time on the internet every single day, what does it seem as though is occurring with 
um, our ability to be watched mm. as we are on the internet. You mm. kind of gave it earlier a little bit with their query. We're using the Google substrate or the Alibaba or Baidu or Tencent mm -hmm. or Facebook mm -hmm. as substrate uh, to query onto and then we're relying on their algorithms to be nuanced and, and multivariate and right. unity oriented. What are your thoughts about those substrates and a global surveillance state? Well. There's an interesting question here. I, I think first off, one of my basic principles is that knowledge is good. So the positive side of everyone spending so much time online is that for the first time ever, we have a vast record of human behavior. This is amazing. We could use this to truly understand humans in a way that we'd never have done so before. All anthropological study, studies of the past were done by a particular individual just observing people, writing down small notes. Uh, then we had anthropological studies where perhaps sometimes people were recorded. Well, now we have something like two to three billion people, right, that are always being watched. This means we have this huge pool of information. We could learn new things about humans, things we could not figure out previously. But then comes like the power aspect again. Um, human, what is predictable is in a way manipulatable, right? And that's why mass surveillance is to me truly interesting. It's less, I mean, it's, it's of course bad when an authoritarian or totalitarian government uh, perhaps you know, persecutes people that it shouldn't be persecuting. Um, there's this idea of like hunting down the lone dissident. Yeah. I kind of think the technological capacity to hunt down the lone dissident was pretty advanced already in the 20th century. You already had things like, you know, they would bug people's apartments, they would bug phone lines, they would have teams of people trying to find, well, who are these who are either activists, or revolutionaries, or reformers that we just don't like. And this was used in power struggle between different factions within systems like that of the Soviet Union or Communist China, or, you know, arguably even the United States of America in, in its more, you know, its more um, turbulent periods like the 60s uh, or maybe the, the early 1990s. Um, but the interesting thing here is that mass surveillance, not as a tool necessarily of government spying, but as a tool of government policy, is something that we've not truly faced. If the government can know reliably, thanks to the power, you know, showed computer chips earlier, uh, you know, compute has massively increased. Compute, unlike just the interconnectedness of the internet, allows us to run advanced artificial intelligence algorithms, allows us to process masses of data. These two to three billion humans are not just watched by other humans trying to study and learn about mm -hmm. other human beings. They are basically data that's processed economically at scale yep. because the possibility to process data economically at scale combined with people are now under consistent observation yep. means that there's a possibility of a deep kind of micromanagement that we have not yet seen in human history. Yep. It's very easy to object on it. It's very easy, especially from the Western, from a more American perspective to be like, well, you know, I want to be a free individual or from an idealistic perspective, you know, I, I just want to be a being on this earth. I don't want to be part of this vast system. Uh, but what if there are economic gains? To micromanaging citizens in this way? What if there are productivity gains? What if there are military gains? What if the government literally can make sure that you're brushing your teeth every morning mm -hmm. and deducts points if your phone notices you haven't? Mm -hmm. That sounds really bad in a way, but what if it works? And if it works, we might be forced into a system that's higher on compulsion, even as the nominal like indicators of our life improve, even as perhaps lifespan is slightly longer or we're somewhat richer. Uh, but in a way, uh, our authority for individual decision-making has been devolved to central authority. And now central authority is no longer even a human being in a way, yeah. but is this decision-making process that's still like run in the name of a human being, again, either the board of Facebook or some sort of government entity or something. Um, but, you know, in, in a way that's a sad outcome. That's an outcome where human agency has, has left the world. Um, I think there has to be a strong response to that. And I mentioned previously economics, and you know global shipping is a great example. The reason globalization happened is not because everyone wanted to be interconnected as human beings necessarily, but because the economics were good. Yes. It, was better, it was better and cheaper to ship something all the way from China to the United States or from the United States to Europe, let's remember that also happens, mm -hmm. uh, than to produce it locally, right? And as soon as you could have something that's like 
50% cheaper, 100 times cheaper perhaps, uh, then it becomes a no-brainer. You're outcompeted by those that participate in globalization. Definitely. If you try to opt out of globalization, isolate yourself, you're going to be just a very rich, you're going to be a very impoverished society in an ever richer world. Mm-hmm. So that's why we should fear, I think, the combination, I mean, fear. I, I almost want to say fear. Yes, we should, we should avoid the outcome of a mass surveillance state that uses a lot of algorithmic data to optimize our lives, even if the nominal results are good. Mm-hmm. Because that would be a locking down and narrowing of the destiny of humans as individuals and of humanity as a whole. Uh, there are definitely ways to do this well in a more decentralized way in a way that empowers individuals you know if if my phone was actually my personal assistant with the information belonging to me and i could set the parameters on what kind of behavior i want to encourage in myself that's a notable step forward that's humanity plus that's not humanity minus um but then setting that up so that that happens um not trivial at all now when i said fear um i was thinking about it as I was saying it, I don't think it's very useful to be afraid of futures, mm-hmm. even if they're dystopian futures. It's much better to carefully think them through. Yeah. And one of the things I've always learned is that fear is not conductive to thought. So think about it, contemplate it, perhaps even accept it, and then deviate from that undesirable future. There's so much of our society right now where we are too afraid to look at things. You know, the United States is too afraid to look at what happens if China becomes the new dominant superpower. We are too afraid as individuals to consider that, you know, perhaps we're no longer making our own decisions. We are too afraid to perhaps consider that, you know, decisions are being made non-transparently. So we default to a simple civics class version of how our governments work, Mm -hmm. even though we personally, if we ever worked in an office environment, know that those principles aren't upheld. Yeah, I, I went quite deep into answering this. Yes. You, should, you should rein me in if I go too yes, deep. Yes, yes. Oh, you, you're synthesizing a lot of different complex information. And the, w- one, of, one of the ones that you mentioned is how to, how to write the code of technology yes. to maximize human potential and human sovereignty. This is a very interesting point. Um, rather than having it on a global surveillance level, is, it, or is there a way for us to own our data and use our devices to help us live better lives mm-hmm. that are aligned with our divine will and our, and our purpose in, in the mm-hmm. world, um, <clears throat> while simultaneously, hopefully spiritually, evolving to a point where even on a, on a transparency level, maybe mm-hmm. some, of the, um, the, some of the surveillance isn't even needed at that point because we are mm-hmm. such um, well-behaved uh, primates on the planet, hopefully, hopefully. Right. And now uh, you mentioned this earlier, we talk, we, we're starting to shift us into the direction of what happens on an economic level if China is able to outpace the United States. And I think that what we're seeing is in many ways a, a, a Pareto curve distribution um, with China and the United States being at the forefront and then so many other countries being at the tail. Um, and so it's, it's looking like um, and some of the some of the images that we have here are some of the leading companies and countries around the world, um, and we have the, one of the ones we have is is Jobs and Tim Cook. Um, for, this is of course this is with Apple, um, one of the highest valued companies in the world, and then we have Sergey Brin from Google with Prince Mohammed bin Salam, Salman Salman of, of Saudi Arabia of Saudi Arabia, which is very interesting walk and talk i'm sure is happening there and then we have elon musk of spacex and tesla and then lastly we have xi Jinping of china as well and so what is your synthesis on the out innovation of china out competing the united states as well as just the role that these companies further play and countries further play in the development of our mm. world? Well, will China out-innovate the United States is an extremely interesting question. Some of the names that were just brought up in this like short slideshow are beacons of individual innovation in the United States, right? Steve Jobs' Apple came to define the taste of a generation, but also produced the smartphone as a true device. I unfortunately don't expect uh, to be surprised by Apple anymore. 
Uh, this is perhaps an indictment of the company. The company maintains its good taste, but will not build the next iPhone. Uh, building the iPhone, it is, however, now manufactured in China. You can only invent an iPhone once. Where it's manufactured, well, that's a matter of economics. So that technology, while pushed forward, the, while the frontier is pushed forward, you get to encode what you want in the technology itself. You get to set its defaults very quickly. Technology becomes the property of all. In a way, technology like self-globalizes. It encourages copying. Everyone understands and viscerally sees the power of a technology and wants it for themselves. And if they copy your design, perhaps the code continues, right? The smartphone, as we know it, has taught humans new things about how to use it and how to relate to each other. They could have easily been taught to do a different thing. Perhaps we'd have all been wearing around Bluetooth headsets or something. We would add voice interface instead of like, you know, screen interfaces. Um, we now can't imagine something different. And we also, you saw Elon, right? Elon is single-handedly making America a leader in the space industry. With and the thousands of others that build the Of course, of the course, of course, of course. His, vision, yeah, his yeah. vision is definitely something that inspires the engineers that work there. Yeah. And the general decisions allow, you know, allow things such as funding to come to the engineers that work there. And they get to work on projects that they understand are trying to get people eventually to Mars. Yeah. In a very real sense, the mission statement of SpaceX isn't to maximize profits, it's to go to Mars. And I think going to Mars inspires engineers much more than making a profit. Though profit is nice and you should have it if you can. Make consciousness interplanetary, electrify Earth with vehicular transportation. Right, right. And now going back to the China comparison, the big question in my mind is, uh, will China produce such visionaries and exceptional individuals as Elon, mm -hmm. as Steve Jobs? Well, maybe, right? There are governments all over the world that try to court people who are already exceptional visionaries. Please come to here. Mm. Uh, there's a Saudi Arabian city called Neom, where the Saudi government is trying to make it a Middle Eastern center of innovation, make it a city extremely friendly to technology and development. Having heard about various problems San Francisco has had over the years, such as you know housing, homelessness, um, unreasonably high living expenses, you might imagine, well, it's not that hard to unseat the capital of Silicon Valley and move Silicon Valley somewhere else in the world, but perhaps into a new city. Hundreds of thousands of powerful nodes as humans yes, into yes. those areas. It's, it's an undertaking, but it's yeah. been done before in history, right? So my question is, well, can China attract foreign talent and can it generate domestic talent? I believe it definitely can generate domestic talent, but does this talent have the space in Chinese society to fulfill their vision? Hmm. Would Chinese society punish or reward an Elon Musk punish or reward a Steve Jobs. Here you have an interesting trade-off. The Chinese Communist Party has consistently viewed individuals that are pursuing unique ideas, ideas that are not coming from the center, as possible threats. There's a delicate balance to be had in their mind between the authority of the party, the authority of the government, because from the Chinese perspective, they went through a devastating civil war, not once but twice in the 20th century. First in the Warring States period, after the fall of the you know, Qing Dynasty, and then in the war between the communist and nationalist forces in the immediate aftermath of World War II. They prize stability and unity. Yeah. But if you prize stability and unity too much, uh, you can end up stifling out alternative visions because yeah. the indiv individual inspiration goes out to the community, to the thousands of workers of SpaceX. They, in fact, are receiving and building upon and expanding and realizing and co-creating the vision Elon has set for them. But if you splot that down, then they can only co-create the vision of the single central organ of society. So yeah. China, I think, can create a city much more easily than Saudi Arabia that can attract the most talented creative minds of the world. It can give these creative minds special privileges. But unless it will be able to generate and foster such spirits in their own society, their society will also fail to innovate. So there, there, there I would think if the Chinese create space for individual thought in their society, uh, they, will in fact, they will in fact outcompete the US. And if not, they'll lag behind. 
This relates so much to your post on great founder theory. Um, when you look at um, the individuals that you've been describing and we've been showcasing here, mm -hmm. um, a lot of their ability to galvanize humans around a vision is so beautiful because yes. then, yeah, then, then you can make tremendous advancements in and updates in civilization's code. And this has been seen as a burden of genius Correct. from Dr. Thomas Starzl Correct. to the Wright brothers and right. all the way back to when photography started, even before mm -hmm. that, when the wheel language I mean this these things have been coming and so much how do you galvanize other humans around a central vision that can update civilization's code for the better and I love that theory around being able to to do so and that's a huge inspirational point can China inspire a great founder theory can the United States continue to inspire great founders um, what will happen with the Middle East and Europe and um, Latin America, so many Africa, so many other places in the world have the potential to update civilization's code Correct. with great founders and uh, with the unleashing of creative potential and leapfrogging of technologies. I wanna ask you about some of the power struggles that are happening um, on the planet right now. Um, what's happening, Israel and Palestine, Pakistan and India, Venezuela, um, these things are uh, pretty much one, one could even say m more than ever there are little pockets of of of, combat, of combat around ideas and even more so uh, alternative uh, mm -hmm. countries involvements in these mm -hmm. places for natural resources mm -hmm. so what are your current thoughts around these little pockets that are happening well uh, I think India versus Pakistan is the most worrying one in India versus Pakistan, you see a Pakistani state that is unfortunately a little bit in a state of uh, dissolution. This might sound relatively benign. So what if a country is in a state of dissolution? Well, it means that there's a fragmentation of its military forces where its military forces want some kind of confrontation with India. Their perspective is in the long run, India is economically outgrowing us and will force whatever outcome it wants Right now, we can perhaps still win a war. The government of Pakistan, of course, like you know, no one goes into war easily, doesn't want such a war, while noting to India it is very much willing to defend itself and willing to defend its particular interests. India's perspective is different. Well, we have a border dispute. We both claim this area, um, the Kashmir That's province. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, we share like some cultural heritage and all of this. You know, they, they both have a strong claim to the history of Indian civilization. Uh, this isn't usually discussed, but Pakistan, straightforwardly, uh, is also an heir to ancient Indian civilization as much as India is. Um, there's a layer of religious conflict, Hindu versus yeah. Muslim. Yeah. India is the world, one of the world's largest Muslim countries. It has a large Muslim minority. Yeah. It's a minority. Only in India could 200 million people be a minority, but they are. Uh, Pakistan almost overwhelmingly Muslim, right? So any conflict between India and Pakistan will have spillover effects and will shake the pillars of Indian society itself. Yes. So the Indian government's aware of this and in a way does not want war with Pakistan either. However, if a military faction is pursuing war against you, you can't be completely certain that this is not a decision by the central government of your opponent. Imagine if the height of the Cold War, a Russian or an American general unilaterally attacked forces of the other side. Could an American president or a Soviet premier truly believe a story by their counterpart that, oh, this was merely a rogue general, this is not the beginning of a full-scale invasion? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's very difficult to believe such a statement if trust is low and between the weak Pakistani government and the Indian government that is facing challenges on many sides, including the rise of China, there exists a history of bad communication. The two states formed in a very difficult period after the end of British colonialism, in many ways mirroring conflicts in other fragments of the British Empire, such as Northern Ireland, where there exists a conflict between the Protestant Irish and the Catholic Irish with the Protestant Irish being descended from English settlers and the Catholic Irish seeing themselves as, as you know, true natives. And in India, the, the, the Hindu versus Muslim struggle nearly resulted in war. In fact, the two countries have gone to war numerous times since. Uh, if a nuclear exchange happens there, I predict an Indian victory. I predict many millions of people will die. And even in an Indian victory, 
the remaining Indian society will be shattered and it will be a humanitarian disaster of untold proportions. We will have easily 90 million refugees from such a situation. Uh, the economic progress of the subcontinent would be set back and trust in fellow man around the world would be decreased. Uh, a nuclear war would then no longer be this hypothetical terrible thing that could have happened during the Cold War, but suddenly becomes a normal thing that occurs every now and then. Mm. A thing that could happen to our country. So the first effect of it would not be, oh no, nuclear weapons are terrible, we should disarm. The first effect is going to be nuclear war happens, we should arm. Mm -hmm. right? That's going to be the, the security and the state logic. So that's why I think that conflict is the most worrisome of the ones listed. Israel on Palestine is an interesting example of the struggles of um, people to find like a good peaceful coexistence. The most interesting aspect there is the delicate balance of power that exists in the Middle East as a whole, where you have Iran that is trying to expand its sphere of influence, trying to acquire uh, states to be its allies uh, in a twist, uh, you know, in a twist uh, compared to the intention of U.S. foreign policy planners in the early 2000s. Iraq has now become an Iranian ally because the Iraqi government is Shia dominated. So in the Middle East, there's the Sunni versus Shia conflict. Uh, Iran as such finds itself opposed to Israel, but because the Shia-Sunni conflict exists, ironically, Saudi Arabia has quite aligned interests with Israel. In particular, their interest is a containment of Iran. Also, they share an interest in not having states that are too powerful in the immediate vicinity. Saudi Arabia's military is relatively weak. Um, such a military can't really compete with an army of even another Arab country, even if it was a Sunni Arab country. The Iraq of Saddam Hussein was at one point militarily powerful, and it was dominated by the Sunni faction, yet Saudi Arabia was quite concerned. And let's remember that Iraq invaded Kuwait. When they saw how successful the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait was, they probably considered how successful an Iraqi invasion of Saudi Arabia might be, which is why they called upon and even assisted US, uh, US engagement and US waging of war with Iraq. Yeah. So the interesting situation there is that in theory, you know, in theory as a religious duty, uh, the Saudi state should have never assisted non-believers fighting believers, right, if you use that typology. But the history of religion and politics has always been politics first, religion second. Religion used more as a justification than a true cause of international action. The security concerns tend to dominate. This is true in medieval Europe. Uh, you would have a fruitful alliance between the Kingdom of France and the Ottoman Turk, and the Ottoman Turkish Empire, a Muslim and a Catholic power. Well, who are they fighting? Well, probably the Protestants or the Spanish or whoever else. They had no immediate conflict of interest and a common interest in, say, weakening the Habsburgs. And this has not changed in the modern era at all. So a lot of the things that happen in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as such are caused by these larger calculus of the entire region where people decide to back either the Palestinians or decide to back the Israelis or decide to you know, um, intervene in a nearby country such as Syria. That calculus flows from the great powers downwards to these small conflicts. These small conflicts are often seen as indicators that the area itself is messed up. Uh, more frequently, however, it's not just that the area itself has legitimate endemic problems, but it is a wound, a reflection of these larger tensions in the world as such. Venezuela is an interesting case of a country that was trying to unseat U.S. geopolitical dominance in South America. In some ways, you could argue that the you know, deplorable state of living conditions there right now is the result of failures of socialism, of redistributing production. To some, to some part, this is true, but in some part, it's also the difficulty of attempting to build a politically independent entity in a world where economic ties are a vector of political influence. Mm -hmm. U.S. sanctions on a country like Cuba and Venezuela, I'm not going to say whether such sanctions should or should not exist. There are many good reasons to have sanctions against such countries. But the truth is those sanctions do make the countries poorer than they would be otherwise. Mm. Um, furthermore, uh, there's always the question of, well, how paranoid should a government be 
against insurgents, against revolutions, and so on. And one of the strongest reasons to be worried about an uprising in your own country is if you fear there might be foreign support coming in, funding rebels, right? Those, again, to go all the way back to Pakistan and India, a big concern of the Indian government is quiet Pakistani support for terrorist groups. So that, that would be a, a quick scan of the world there. Yeah, and I w really, I feel as though this has a lot to do with our um, ability to spiritually advance ourselves toward mm. this unity of collective mm. prosperity and actualization. If we could get there faster, we could avoid so many of the conflicts that we have, but this is a very difficult puzzle with 8 billion deferring perspectives and opinions right. and power right. struggles and, right. and authorities over knowledge and pro process of education and it does seem to be also a bunch of codes that are competing mm -hmm. the uh, code of, of what it's like to be Hindu versus Muslim, the code mm -hmm. of what it's like to, to, to compete with, a, 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 we, didn't, we didn't even mention um, China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, it's right. like a code of, of, code of, of wanting to economically uh, prosper your, your country by, by um, uh, economically advancing other nations, but then what are the, what are the agreements? Are they lopsided? Are they asymmetrical mm -hmm. agreements? Mm -hmm. um, so there's these, these questions of, of, of the codes of the technology companies as well as the countries themselves, as well as religions that are all in a big melting pot that's mm -hmm. mixing together to um, er eradicating suffering, maximizing prosperity. The objective function is there. It's just how do we, how do we all agree on how to take the steps to actually get there? I have a question from uh, the audience. Yes, let's have the audience question. All right, let's bring it up on the, uh, on the TV. All right, let's do okay, it. Okay, there we are. Huh, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think, can yeah, just question, to answer it. Uh, well, uh, for those that are um, just listening on our audio platforms, um, we have a question from Aunt K. Cook, who says, how can Western society continue to form collective intelligence and update its young with relevant skills and knowledge. And I believe this is Anthony. Anthony reached out to us from the United Kingdom. He's a graduate student mm. in physics, I believe, and he, mm -hmm. um, he's just been in touch with our channel as well. It's good to hear from you. Thanks for watching, Anthony, yes. and participating. Right. It's important. I mean, it's, it's a really tough question. The best answer I would have is that uh, we should be moving towards a world where we allow high agency individuals to express that agency as much as possible. Mm. And uh, that can't be done in a standardized bureaucratic context. It has to be done via leaving spaces open. I think without the ability to act, a lot of learning never happens because there's a unity between theory and action. Um, this unity has been you know, degrading in very serious ways for a very long time, uh, I would argue at least 100 years, uh, because it's much easier to organize a formal education process where everyone is given theory than to organize social structures such that there is room for the multiplicity of action and agenda. Uh, we discussed earlier the problem with China. Well, China's in many ways different, but it's not that different. They're just a little bit more on the spectrum towards order and stability and they're more towards the spectrum of, well, perhaps this is a challenge to central authority. The United States has some elements as well. I think that on a good enough setup, stability, order, are not in contradiction with creativity and growth. What is more unstable and fragile than a stagnant, non-adaptive system? That will be a short-lived system. Such a system can only last 50 years or 100 years it can never last 400 years or even a thousand years. A system that can last a thousand years is a self-transforming and evolving system. To make it more concrete, I think we should probably uh, abolish elite education, by which I mean not abolish education, but abolish the credentialing chokehold held by the Ivy League universities. Mm. Uh, they put a stamp on your forehead that says you are given economic opportunities or you're not given economic mm -hmm. opportunities. I don't know, perhaps we should do something radical. Perhaps we should enroll half a million 
students a year in Harvard. Mm -hmm. If Harvard is so good for you and is teaching you so many wonderful things, totally. why shouldn't we democratize Harvard? Why the economic, uh, why the constraint on the supply? Correct, yeah. correct. Why are you constraining supply? Well, you know, a cynical argument might be that Harvard is a hedge fund attached to a school for tax purposes, right? And then you might say, well, perhaps their calculus is guided primarily by how to get students that will maximally, you know, that will give the biggest possible donations back to you. Sure. Right? Yeah. And how to maximize the value of the small economic network. Still, though, because so much of the online open uh, educational mm. platforms now enable some of the they enable scaling, so, radical scaling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, universe a reform of the top, you know, a reform of tertiary education. So these these top universities probably need to be opened up. Um, I think it's possible for us to scale, like the delivery of theory there, and we should deconstrain the credentialing system so that. You know, a simple like piece of paper is not the key thing that enables or not economic opportunity. You can imagine Correct. even more fundamental transformations. Imagine a world where you're not supposed to discriminate against someone on the basis of a college degree. You are allowed to evaluate them for the concrete skills they have or don't, but you're not allowed to ask which school they went to. Wouldn't that be a different world? Maybe that would be a better world, right? Um, so that, that will be step one. Step two is probably, again, uh, being more friendly rather than afraid of human agency. Mm -hmm. And number yeah. three would be uh, viewing knowledge as positive, right? When I said earlier, it's not useful to be afraid of the future. It's best to study the future. I think we've inadvertently become afraid of knowledge. We now believe that you know, there was forbidden knowledge and we tasted of the fruit maybe back in 1945 with the first atomic bomb, maybe earlier. Um, you know, we've, we've eaten the fruit, we're chewing it, we're processing it. Let's not have it be poisonous for us. Yep. And let's not be afraid of eating more fruit. Yep, yep. Right? Yep. I think we need, we need nourishment, if anything, in terms of our understanding of the universe. Not, not a fast. A fast is not the right way to solve this. Yeah, knowledge uh, in its daily proportions with the updated, most updated skill sets. Um, emotional intelligence is a massive mm -hmm. one. Understanding artificial intelligence is, uh, as an implication mm -hmm. of society, biotech, neurotech, blockchain technology. Right, um, right. Yeah, because if we can get kids to understand those technologies and the, the way that decentralization um, will impact civilization, yeah, I think that's a ma massive plus for our global harmony. Um, so those would be maybe some of the, the skills. I want to ask you about the way that you form your analysis mm -hmm. of civilizations and how they prosper right. or fail. Right. Um, in this idea of a lineage of knowledge, what the methodologies are. We talked about critical thinking as one of these mm -hmm. very interesting principles of methodology. And these last couple of images that we have kind of give people an idea of like of, of, if historically where people come from, right. like some of the greatest founders of the United States of America and the right. lines of code that we have, also right. older civilizations, um, ancient civilizations. Um, which one was this? This one? is a Rome. This is from this Trajan's column. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This one's Rome. And the, and the other one is, is that Egypt? Is this? This is Abu Simbel. It's a temple, you know, towards the end of the late Bronze Age, uh, commissioned by Ramses II. This is right before uh, their civilization collapsed too. It's uh, right before the Bronze Age collapse. In what country now? Uh, Egypt. This and is so we Egypt have Egypt, today. we have a Rome, and we have the United States. States of America. States of yeah. America. Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of this is kind of funny though to see like 250 years ago versus a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, and kind of yeah. So teach us about how you take these methodologies and lineages and analyze mm. current civilizations. Well, well, first to give a context, I think that civilization has gone through multiple iterations. We can make an argument as to you know which civilizations are truly distinct or not, but the configuration of civilization and therefore of humanity on this planet has been notably different. It's gone through several iterations. Each of these iterations, each of these societies has failed eventually. You know, they've been either destroyed or transformed beyond recognition, not always for the better. Yeah. Each society on its own terms had institutions that are unique to it. These unique institutions were often the basis of a body of knowledge that was accumulated by the society. So in a very strong way, the foundations of society rest in particular lineages of knowledge upon which institutions are built that then 
form the skeleton and the framework of the society as a whole. Yeah. If you were an individual in Egypt, in Rome, in America today, in a philosophical sense, you are radically free. In a practical sense, different things are rewarded, different things are possible. There are different machines in your environment. I'm not just talking about iPhones. I'm talking about machines such as, will you have a trial by jury? Yes. Right? I'm talking machines about, can you go and find a spiritually transformative experience in the Temple of Ra? Yeah. Right? These are machines. And, you know, there was the recent tragedy of Notre Dame burning. Notre Dame is one way to think about it. It's a big, old, useless stone building. Another way to think about it is 800 years ago, people found the transformation of individual consciousness and community culture so important, they chose to stop and build a building out of stone for 100 years. Yeah, yeah. And if you go into one of these great cathedrals even today, perhaps you, you, you appreciate or you don't organize religion or politics or whatever, but you can't deny it's creating changes in you merely by walking through it. Uh, so is that perhaps an advanced technology that we have lost? What is the last truly transformative and inspirational building we have built? Perhaps there was a lineage of knowledge there, an understanding of human psychology paired with an understanding of architecture that is a kind of thought we no longer can access. Now, modern day, the modern world knows many things the Romans and the Egyptians didn't, but sometimes it's the other way around. Now, Talking about these methodologies, right? When you think of lineages, people often imagine that this is like, well, you write down something into a book, now this knowledge is safe forever. I'm more interested in, well, what allowed you to write the book in the first place? The most interesting kind of knowledge is the kind where you can transfer the creativity or the generators or the tacit, implicit expertise that allowed you to produce an impressive intellectual artifact, such as a completed book, a solved equation, a particular engineering challenge overcome. In other words, I'm saying, not only should we want to understand the engineering solutions used by, say, rocket scientists working for NASA in the 1960s, we should understand and know how those rocket scientists, if transported to 2019, would solve completely new engineering challenges. The processes. Correct. What we want is the architects and designers or people who have captured their spirit and their understanding of the cathedrals of France to build the new cathedrals or new buildings or new concert halls with modern materials. What is Aristotle's view on artificial intelligence is a very yeah. interesting question. It's funny, yeah. And if we, if we had a coherent lineage of knowledge, there would be a student of Aristotle that today could answer that question. Yeah. Meanwhile, modern philosophy has devolved into a sort of study of the ashes rather than a preservation of the flame. Mm. People have very intricate opinions as to what exactly Plato or Aristotle meant by X or Y or Z. They don't seem to apply that thought system to new things. Uh, we do have some preserved lineages, of course. There are many mathematical lineages right now that are quite alive. Yes. Uh, Gauss in the 19th century had many students, each of them exceptional mathematicians in turn. And you have famous examples such as Paul Erdos, yeah. yeah, who would go around and he would say, my mind is ready. And he would show up at your door and there would be an intense collaboration between Erdos and a mathematician. Yeah. These collaborations were so productive that today people talk about the Erdos number Correct. as to how many how many degrees of separation from Erdos are you? Totally. Yeah. And How can we recreate that flame of right. knowledge preservation? Right, yeah. right. Where, again, preservation is not embalmment like you might do with a mummy. It's more that, you know, how can we create offspring yeah. to genius? What is, the, yeah. what is the intellectual offspring of Gauss? Yeah. You know, who's the intellectual offspring of, say, you know, I, I don't know, like James Watt or someone, a discoverer of DNA? And it seems as though another one of the ways to potentially phrase this would be to think about um, applying a, a Pareto dis a distribution to the 100 billion humans that built civilization, right. identify the 20% of them that built 80% of civilization, mm -hmm. and then zone in, double click on the 20% and look at their skill sets. What mm -hmm. were their skill sets? What were their processes? Mm -hmm. And then potentially take as much as we can from that and uh, embedded into our current skill sets and processes. I like the way that you described that, um, that we have uh, this foundation of knowledge, then we have institutions, and then the institutions sort of build the frameworks. In which we live as individuals. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, this goes right back. 
you as an individual can create new knowledge that changes the institutional framework, that changes both yours and other lives. If the individual is empowered to their fullest creative potential. Right, right, right. And if there is a structural thing preventing the creation of new knowledge, this is a civilization that is eating its seed corn. Yeah. And I feel that, I fear that we're accidentally going to wander um, into an equilibrium where we are eating the seed corn, where we make everyone brush their teeth every morning and their phone buzzes at them if they don't. You know, if we have a social credit score, you know, what would have Elon's social credit score been when he was 20, right? What would have Winston Churchill's social credit score been when he was 30 or 40, right? The ability to make mistakes and bounce back from mistakes is vital in the learning process. And if we don't afford this yeah. to ourselves as human beings, well, maybe the algorithms are still learning, but we're not. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's so much good to take from the conversations that we have on civilization. and. Yeah, life. but there's also so much bad. It all really depends on how you interpret it. I'm just saying. It's a good point, Ron. You can be, right. you can be positive, but it just mm. seems so bleak. I mean, we're talking about how do we educate uh, a new generation, but aren't you aware there's something among us that doesn't want smart people? critical thinkers, to question authority, to speak truth to power. There is something obviously among us. Everything you're suggesting is, is, is just an adversary So then that. the question to propose would be, um, what, what do you think is that force among us that is mm. pu pushing away critical thinking? What the is dark that? villain, Darth Vader. Well, it's a very interesting question, right? I think. I tend to view that, um, you know, there's a, good, there's a good quote by Napoleon, uh, never attribute to malice, where you know, never attribute an action to malice when incompetence will do. Yeah. So first off, I think there's a lot of incompetence. I do also think there's obviously, there, you know, there's malicious systems that exist. Um, I think it's very difficult to look at something like the history of the 20th century and not conclude that there is some sort of like malicious or perverse aspect I, I think it's probably baked into human nature to some extent. And I think we are in the process of harmonizing, overcoming, healing. It really depends which sort of philosophy, which sort of code, to use your terminology, you ascribe to. Uh, but you kind of have to grapple with this reality, right? There is, there is, this, there is perhaps like a shadow in, in the human heart. Yeah. And you know, the human heart has projected itself onto the world. Totally. And, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to figure out how to empower the best parts of ourselves. That's so right. I'm more focused, I tend to be more focused on building the positives, on building things that I Likewise. can study and know we well, discern did say to be good. To make the best of a dystopian future earlier in the program. I, I mean, was trying to wrap my I was, head I, around that. I, 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 think, I think it's good to view the world with equanimity and realism, right? Yeah. I think realism without wallowing in despair. That's, yeah. that's, the, it's the, that's the golden middle path that almost yeah. no one reaches. Yeah, yeah. We either want to go away into mania and forget <laughs> about some aspects of reality we don't like, yeah. or we want to go into depression because depression absolves you of the need to act. act. I'm, yeah. you're, you're crushed, you're like, oh, this is such a big problem. Well, thank God it's, a, it's an unsolvable problem yeah. because if it was a hard solvable problem, yeah. Then I would have to get out of bed. Yeah, correct. Yeah, this is very interesting. When you go into the extremes of those two, right. um, you tend to have inaction as a as a result. As the default, as and the, default. The, the inaction yeah. is an inaction of thought as well. Yeah. You choose not to build models. You choose not to think critically. Yeah. In a very real sense, you talk. What's the dark villain? It's like I think it's merely the things that enable us to excuse ourselves from choosing to think and choosing to act. I think it ultimately requires yeah. our decision to not act and to not learn. It can be facilitated yeah. even in malicious ways, but ultimately I think that power remains with, with, uh, with humans. Agreed, if we had a further um, stake in the mm. education of every seed and in the nutrition of every seed that the right. seed child that's born into the world, uh, if we all have a stake in it to be a critical thinker um, and for them to be fully realized with something like a big history, mm. that this type of stuff with their own creative explosion and endeavoring, I think we could, um, we could see a lot more successful gains in our world. 
Um, Bef before we, we move on, can we? Uh, yeah. That we have a viewer watching, uh, Andrew. Yes. He just wants to know. Um, yes, he Andrew. was watching the other day when uh, we had a, a couple of weird chicks on. We can't really say that anymore, Andrew. But he wants to know uh, what TF is this channel? Can we answer him uh, oh, quickly? Oh, Andrew. <laughs> uh, Andrew, hey, welcome to Simulation. Um, our show features different leaders at the edge of their fields, and we try and make that content as fun and relatable and educational as possible. Um, and so this is everything from entrepreneurs, to scientists, to artists, to educators uh, across different fields. So thanks for tuning in and asking Andrew, and thanks for stumbling upon our content based on some recommendation algorithm likely from YouTube. Look at that. If you thought what TF is a champ, this is funny because it's also <clears throat> it's look at, realism without wallowing. Oh uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, Another repetition of the of the good. Yeah, yeah. This is a, this is very also interesting because the question I want to ask you. To this see is so recursive. Right. I'm yeah, watching myself so from a few minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's, it's kind <laughs> of upsetting to see yourself on camera. You know, I know there are some people who love it, but I, I absolutely hate it every time I do it. Okay, we. But gotta, I, I we love the ask. conversation. We got. I love the conversation, <laughs> not the cameras. We have to ask because this is probably an update from your last answer, and we just had a very quick glimpse into uh, the simulation. <laughs> How's from last year, as you've been developing your, your thoughts, do you feel as though we're in a simulation? That's very interesting. I still think we are definitely always in a social simulation. I think we reify and we take for granted all of these conventions that surround us. Conventions such as it is good to discriminate against people on the basis of a college degree that was granted probably on a nepotistic basis rather than a basis yeah. of merit. There was a recent scandal at Harvard, of course, yeah. right? And we also consider things such as the concept of having a job instead of perhaps having the unity between work and leisure, or perhaps concepts such as, um, you know, it's, things aren't really knowable. I should just, you know, let the mystery exist out there in the world mm -hmm. rather than choosing to learn and to investigate, right? Um, I can't really speculate that much about metaphysical foundations of our world. Simulation hypothesis as such seems very plausible. You know, what is the substrate on which our reality runs? Maybe it's, you know, a very advanced computer chip like the one we saw earlier on a massive, massive compute. Perhaps it's implemented in, uh, in mathematics itself. And mathematics is the only thing that's real. And there's some sort of platonic mm -hmm. idealism where the forms are more real than the emanation of the forms. Um, those are good questions to try to grapple with. I think people derive a lot of epistemic, philosophical, and psychological value out of grappling with those questions, but I don't feel qualified to give an answer. So that's why I limit my answer to the social dimension. Mm -hmm. I feel I understand these structural dynamics really well, uh, and I've invested a lot of years of work into doing into If doing only so. more people understood I'm not qualified to give an answer, I think the world needs a little more of that. It's true. But true. thank you for that. I really like the quote earlier, too, about not only are we saying, I don't know, which is very important, but also the uh, Napoleon quote about uh, ascribing, um, uh, the, to, ascribing to malice what ignorance would have been Correct. defined as a description of. Correct. And that can be also thought of as Occam's razor. Yes. Um, yeah, that yes. ignorance is potentially a simpler solution than trying to make a condoluted story about malevolence being um, what's actually at play. Right. Um, very interesting. And then let's see if you've updated your answer on what's the most beautiful thing in the world. Oh, interesting. Oh, man. Um, I think discovering the truth is the most beautiful thing in the world. I think that's, that's, that's lovely. And the fun part about truth is, well, you can arrive at it together with other people. So you can get the human connection element out of the joint discovery of truth in a very deep, very profound way. That's what's up. Yeah. It's yeah. a collaborative process Correct. of getting to truth. Yeah. yeah, you can't do it yourself. There's too much to figure out. Yeah. 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 So it was super fun having you on for round two. You're such a synthesizer, and you know it, it really it really makes it um, hard to pick and choose what to study. I'm sure you found this to be um, something that's hard, um, as well as when we when we interview you, it's hard to pick what to what to talk about. And I hope we did a good job for those that are 
that are viewing, that are trying to get something powerful from analysis of why civilizations prosper versus fail. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. It was great being here. For round two, really appreciate it. Thanks everyone for tuning in at home. We would love to hear your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. Thanks for all those that were proposing questions throughout. And also, we would love for you to support the artists and entrepreneurs that you believe in, you know, support simulation, our links are below, support the ones in your communities as well, share the content with other people, get them talking about why civilizations collapse versus succeed. Huge shout out to Ron Vagas, our producer and director, thank you very much. And go and build the future, everyone, manifest your dreams into the world. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you soon. Peace.